Hello and welcome. I'm Ian Wielden, Senior Lecturer at Newcastle University and host of the Cultural Peeps podcast. Today's guest is Louise Thompson, the Health and Wellbeing Manager at Manchester Art Gallery, and she's also a freelance professional who supports colleagues in finding creative ways to improve their health. In this episode, Louise explains what her job looks and feels like and outlines how the relationships between the gallery and other partner organisations such as the NHS and other local mental health charities are initiated, developed and sustained. Louise also outlines her definition of mindfulness which is fascinating to hear as well as providing an overview of the Room to Breathe exhibition which is currently on display at Manchester Art Gallery. This is a dedicated space in the gallery where the furniture, colour scheme, number and height of the artworks, text and audio have all been carefully chosen in a way that will help encourage deeper engagement with art and reduce stress. And it's a space that I spent a lovely and relaxing 45 minutes in when I visited back in April. In our chat, we also talk about Louise's own practice as a freelance creative health practitioner, trainer and consultant. In this role, Louise works with galleries, schools and communities, sharing a unique and specialist skill set around how culture and creativity can help improve people's well-beings. This can include training teams on mindfulness, creating resources and delivering workshops with both staff and the public. Looking to the future, Louise is interested in trauma-informed practice and how this can potentially be integrated into different areas of the gallery's activities, including, but not exclusive to, exhibition design, interpretation and wider communication strategies. This conversation took place during a trip to Manchester in April 2023, and we recorded this one on a beautiful sunny day when the blossom trees were in full bloom all around the city. We use one of the meeting rooms at Manchester Art Gallery and the occasional rumbles that you can hear in the background are the city's tram network. As always, I've put links to the things we discussed in the podcast notes so you can easily look things up if you want a bit more detail on anything. Don't forget to like and subscribe through whatever podcast app or website you use so that you can receive future episodes. And as ever, if you have any questions or queries, you can message me through Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or through the Cultural Peeps WordPress site. Thanks again to Louise for her time and for hosting me at Manchester Art Gallery and I hope you enjoy the episode. My name is Louise Thompson and I'm the Health and Wellbeing Manager here at Manchester Art Gallery. Uh, I'm part of the learning team, the learning and engagement team and my job is to work with adults who are experiencing mental health difficulties and using art and creativity and our collections here at the gallery to support them to improve uh, their mental health. Um, so I do that in, in various different ways. Uh, I manage a programme of events and workshops and projects that work with community mental health organisations in the city of Manchester. And typically they're projects that last for about six or six to 12 weeks. And we're, we work in partnership with um, places like the NHS, but also mental health charities like Manchester Mind, uh, Turning Point and other mental health charities. Uh, and 
exploring different art forms and techniques as a way to help people improve their mental health. So what does an average day look like for you? Or if it's not an average, if there's no such thing as an average day, what's an average kind of cycle of a project like? Sure. So uh, there is no such thing as an average day, (laughs) which is good. Um, I suppose an average month might be um, some uh, public workshop. So part of my job is also to deliver a public program, which is um, workshops that are, are accessible to the general public, using arts, artworks on display to um, and exploring them with mindfulness techniques. So usually we have, uh, in, a, in a month, we would have like a public workshop, then perhaps some sessions around a community project. And then a lot of the time I'm in the office planning future projects and workshops with curators and my other colleagues in the learning team, answering a lot of emails, unfortunately, but mainly planning and developing projects for the future. So the work that you do with partners like the NHS and you mentioned some of the charities, how does that relationship work? Is that something that's instigated by you or the galleries or is that, does that come the other way? It's a little bit of both actually. So one of our partners that we've had for a long time is a service within the NHS called Recovery Pathways. And here in Manchester, we're quite lucky that we have a service within an NHS trust that focuses on creativity to improve mental health. That's quite rare in NHS trusts across the country, actually. So it's quite fortunate that we have it here in Manchester. They're our longest partner. We've been partners with them for 14 years. Uh, So sometimes they'll get in touch with me and say, we'd love to do a project uh, around this particular theme and we want to use artworks at the gallery. Can we do something together? And most of the time I'll say yes, of course, or I might get in contact with them and say, you know, we have this new space opening up or this new exhibition and we have a little bit of budget. Do you want to do something together? That's one of, they're one of our longest partners though. Initiating partnership is, is slightly different. A lot of the time people get in touch with the gallery and say, we, can we come and do a project with you? Um, and if we can, if I'm in a position to do that in terms of time and budget, then of course I'll say yes, and we'll do a project together, usually about four weeks or six weeks, just to see if it's a good fit yeah. as a partnership. Um, but very often I might initiate a relationship as well. So it might just be me reaching out to a particular organization in Manchester that I think is doing really great work or that I think links really well to some of the gallery's priorities or some of the council's priority because we're part of Manchester City Council um, and seeing if they want to you know connect with us to deliver some projects so it's a mixture really people get in touch with us we get in touch with them and some of those partnerships will last for a project and that's it and then some you know it'll be such a great fit with the gallery, with both our agendas, and I'll connect really well with the staff, then you know that partnership might last 10 years, and we might do a project each year, you know, over over a 10 year. So it's 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 a mix. A mixture yeah. of those two things. And you also 
input into some of the exhibitions as well here, is that right? Yeah, so probably about five years ago or so, um, the learning team began to work much closer with the curatorial team. And so now we have just one team, which is called the programming team. And so it's very common now for learning managers to work in teams with curators and together developing and putting on exhibitions as, as a team and often working with residents here in Manchester as well. So yes, so I've, I've co-curated a couple of exhibitions so far with some of our brilliant curatorial team, which has been a lot of fun. It's quite new to me, but also interestingly, the curators are also doing some community-based work as well. So they've, they've developed that skill of delivering community projects. So we're both sort of trying on each other's hat that's see. really nice. Though. Yeah, it's yeah. It's really nice. I had a, a really pleasant sit upstairs in the room to breathe space oh, uh, yes. before. Good. That, that's, the, that's the point. So is, is that kind of work upstairs happening all the time here now? Yeah, room to breathe. Um, we've got that space in, actually for about four years, which is quite rare. Yeah. Uh, usually exhibitions, displays change like every three months, six months maybe. But we've got that room for a good length of time. Um, it came about uh, as a result of another exhibition that we had here in the art gallery called And Breathe. There's a lot of breathes in uh, the titles. I really must change that. Um, but And Breathe was a bigger display in a bigger room that was co-curated with a community mental health group and it was all about the relationship between art and mindfulness and that was on that was on display for about a year and a half and then when that came off display we had learned so much from it and we had asked the public for feedback and I literally have like thousands of comment cards piled on my desk where people left comments and you know it was great learning for us as a gallery so we decided that we couldn't just stop there and we wanted to kind of explore this further which led to room to breathe and room to breathe is a is a, well as you know because you've just been there but it's a little room um with only two artworks on display whereas and breathe was a typical you know exhibition style um so Yes, I'm hoping that we can have that room for a long time. Um, that would be great, obviously, from my perspective. If we have to change the content of the room, what I'd really like to see is uh, little zones or little spaces around the whole gallery where people can have a much slower yeah. engagement with art or much more mindful moment with artwork. So maybe that's armchairs and sofas all throughout the and whole gallery. So we think of mindfulness as sort of integrated across all the spaces. But I think it's definitely here to stay. I think mindfulness is here to stay at Manchester Art Gallery. We've been developing it now for about 10 years. So yes, I'm sure it will always have a place here. So you, you talk quite a lot about mindfulness. Mm. What's your definition? What's my, take? my take of on mindfulness. Mindfulness is a simple form of meditation that involves us paying attention to one of three things, really, either our breathing, physical sensations in our body or our one of our senses. And the reason why we pay attention 
to one of these three things is that these three things only ever happen in the present moment. We only ever experience these three things in the present moment. So if you think about it, you know, breathing, we're breathing right now. Um, physical sensations in the body, our mind can time travel to the past and future. It can travel to the moon and back, but our body always stays here. The body is always present. And our senses, we only ever experience our senses in the present moment. So if you can remember past tense, what chocolate tastes like, uh, you know, because you've had it before, you, you know that it's creamy and sweet and stuff, but you can't actually taste chocolate unless you're eating it right now. Or you can imagine future tense, what that warm bath is going to feel like when you get home tonight, but you can't actually feel it unless you're in the bath, you know, in the water. So paying attention to a sense immediately brings your mind into the present moment. And this is really good for our mental health and well-being because a lot of the time we spend our time thinking about the past and thinking about the future. And a lot of the time it's not positive. You know, our brains aren't built, they haven't evolved for uh, positive thinking. It's quite the opposite, in fact. Um, we're, we're, we're more inclined to think negatively and to notice negative events and remember negative events. So coming into the present, being mindful, is a really great way to give our emotional systems a little bit of respite from all that kind of future worrying, projecting, and all the past kind of ruminating re regret, you know, which is something that we do as humans as a default. Um, so that's my take on mindfulness. Mindfulness essentially is about attention and being present and also, you know, not giving yourself a hard time and not giving other people a hard time. It's really interesting to be in that space upstairs and just to sit. And then I noticed the QR code on the wall when I went and took photo and yeah. that came up. And then the prompts in there were really quite helpful. Yeah. That kind of idea about how to focus on something, not necessarily the artwork, mm. but kind of your immediate environment and then linking those things together. And I found that really mm. uh, a really kind of s solid connection to that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I find the, the slowing down aspect in mindfulness is... is quite important it's not essential like it, you know you can you can be mindful at a normal everyday pace but I think in the 21st century this uh, this idea of you know slowing down is so important because everything is so fast now you know yeah. every, the pace of life modern life has never been faster and we've lost that skill and we've we we dismissed the value of slowing down as well. I think we don't, we, we kind of value speed and instantness, uh, you know, yeah. we've lost that value of being slow and taking our time and being here in the present. And it's a shame because- So many distractions. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's it, with Room to Breathe, you know, the reason why we chose two artworks is we know that mindfulness is essentially about attention, where we place our attention noticing when our attention wanders and then bringing it back to where we had intended it to be. Yeah. So in a kind of overstimulated modern world, we wanted to create a space 
where there was just one or two artworks on display. So you could have that holding people's attention more easily instead of kind of overwhelming them with painting after painting or sculpture after sculpture, um, which is fairly typical in art galleries and museums. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, we, art galleries have lots of works in their collection. They want to show them to the public as much as possible. So I totally understand the need to have lots of works on a wall. And I support that. Um, I guess we're, I'm very lucky here at Manchester Art Gallery that I get this little dedicated room yeah. where we can experiment in this way as well. So yeah, it's we're very overstimulated. There's a lot of distractions. You know, attention is you know our most kind of valuable asset at the minute because everyone wants it. Yeah. Everybody wants your attention, Ian. You know, all, all these companies on social media all get really rich. Well, it's commodified, your, isn't it? Yeah. The kind of notion of attention is commodified and... Everything. Yeah. It, these, these little, you know, phones that we have in our pocket, they're designed to hold your attention. Yeah. And even like, you know, streaming episodes, Netflix doesn't even give you like three seconds to yeah. decide you want to opt out. It puts on the next episode straight away. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah. don't, yeah. <laughs> can't lose them, can't lose their attention. So I think this room to breathe, we're like, we, we want to kind of communicate that idea of single attention and this is good for us. Has this role that you're doing now existed at Manchester for a while or are you the first person to to hold this position? No, I'm the second person to hold okay. it. So my predecessor was in the role for about three years before I stepped into it, but it was a new role for her. And it came as a result of the gallery did a project with the University of Lancashire and they did like a, it was actually involved quite a few galleries in the Northwest. It was, and it was around looking at art and creativity to improve mental health. And the gallery was part of that research. And then the results of the research were so positive that the leadership here at the gallery decided to create a role of the health and well-being manager because with some foresight they saw that actually this was going to become an important role for the art gallery and in the sector in general so this was before 2010 though you know when there was money yeah. in the sector so um yeah it's a relatively new-ish role so how long have you been here i've been at the manchester art gallery for 16 years wow, i know so... that's crazy but i've had four roles right okay <laughs> So you've, you've also got your own work as well, your own practice. Yes, I was working full time at the art gallery for um, as health and wellbeing manager. And then I had my daughter and after the birth of my daughter, I had to come back part time to the art gallery. Once she got a little bit older, I realized that I had a little bit more extra time. So I developed my own practice working with other museums and galleries in the UK and actually across the world, you know, in a post-COVID world, um, working with various different museums and galleries and basically just kind of sharing what I've learned in this role over the past 10 years with them. You know, a lot of museums and galleries are coming to this area of work 
um, for the first time. It's very new to them and um, they, I work with them and let them know, you know, my, my experience and the knowledge that I've gained over the last 10 years. So I might train them in, I might train a teams in mindfulness or I might um, present to them about, you know, how, why museums and galleries are good for people's mental health and well-being. So quite broad subjects. Um, or I might create resources for them or deliver workshops, you know, with the public or with their community groups. So a mixture, really. How did that come into to being? Was that some, did somebody approach you and ask you and then you thought, well, I can be doing this slightly outside of my role or I don't have the capacity to do it within the role? So I went part time and then Susie got a bit older. That's my daughter. And, you know, I like working and I had free time and people over the years had got in touch with me at Manchester Art Gallery and said, oh, could you do this? But I didn't have the capacity to do it because I had a full time job. And also it might have been like a kind of conflict of interests or, you know, because I had a couple of days a week free, I thought, well, maybe I'll give this a go. And just thought I'd dip my toe in. I really didn't think I didn't have any grand plan or anything, okay. but I just thought, oh, I'll build a wee website and uh, say a, f a few things about myself and uh, an Instagram page and I'll, I'll put it out there and see if, if anyone bites. And, and thankfully, quite a lot of people have bitten. <laughs> so is it through the website? And is network important in that, in developing that practice? Yeah, definitely. I think so. I think um, networking, um, promoting your work online is really, really important. And I've, I've come to realise since I've been doing my own sort of business, um, I've come to realise how important networking is and how people will recommend you and will spread the word about what you do and you do the same for them. So networks are really important. Yeah. Um, Self-promotion is really important. As an Irish person, I don't feel 100% comfortable with self-promotion, but I do it because <laughs> I want the jobs. <laughs> but I'm always a little bit cringe right. when I'm like, hey, Just look over here. about it. Um, I think I'm a bit, you know, there's a little voice in my head going, are you showing off again? You know, that That's sort of That's really thing. interesting. That's quite, that is quite a common thing. Mm. So do, you, do you just grin and bear it and go, I've got to do this? Yeah, I just go, I'm just going to ignore that voice. Is it, is it kind of self-doubt or? I think it's more a cultural thing. Like in Northern Ireland, anyone who kind of, you know, was very sure of themselves, kind of got knocked down a peg right. or two. So I think culturally, I'm not 100% at ease with uh, being like, hey, look at me. Yeah. But I do do it. I, I, and I say that I've gotten a lot better at it over the years. And what really helps is that when you do it and people go, oh, hey, that's really good. You yeah. know, you go, actually, yeah, uh, yeah, that's good. So I've got to do it again, you know, but um. But you got to do it. I think you got to do it. You got to get out there and put your face out there and talk, and and that's where people remember you, you know. And then the, an opportunity comes up, and then they remember this woman who she does well-being in museums. Oh yeah, yeah. I know someone who does that, you know, because I've seen her on Twitter or, you know, Instagram or whatever. And then next thing you know, you get an email saying, "Can you come and do a bit of work with me?" So. 
It's got to be done. Is that work similar to the work you're doing here in that sometimes it might be with staff, sometimes it might be with audiences? Yeah. A lot of the time it's training staff, yeah, who are, you know, who just don't know what to do around with, working with their collection in their particular venue and they don't know how to use that collection with certain community groups and to support people's health and well-being they just can't mm-hmm. don't know how to make that connection between them so then i would present to them basically about different well-being techniques and and different strategies they could use with their own particular collection so it's a mixture really yeah and is it easy to balance those two things this part-time job and the freelance do you do you have like defined days there for each one. Yeah, I do. And never, never the never the two shall. <laughs> I'd like to say yes, but you know, <laughs> every now and again, um, in theory, yes. But um, sometimes there's a little bit of swapping around because uh, you know you've got to be flexible yeah. and realistic. But on the whole, I think you know, three days a week I'm here at the gallery, and then anything to do with my business, I keep to the other two days a week, and I try to stick to that just for my own headspace and my own kind of well-being. So um, I try to stick to that as much as possible. How do you look after your own well-being when you're dealing with quite challenging situations? And That's absolutely essential for any professional working, but, you know, particularly people working in this area. Um, it's absolutely essential that you look after yourself and look after your own well-being because you can carry it home with you a lot of the time and it's hard to leave it at the office or at the gallery so you've really got to have in place those boundaries that you you need to stick to um a lot of the time you know when you're working in the kind of mental health field it attracts a lot of rescuers you know people who want to help other people and when I talk with the artists and volunteers and people that I that I work with and I manage, I always say you've got to look after yourself first. You've got to put number one. You've got to practice those self care techniques and look after yourself, because you're not you're no good to anyone if you burn out yeah. and you get overwhelmed. So um, I think boundaries are a big thing. You know, knowing when. Um, knowing when to set a boundary, when to hold it. And that could be anything like, you know, between the hours of this and this, this is when the project happens. And then by three o'clock, the session is over. You allow 10 minutes for people to, to talk or something, but, you know, you cannot be still be sitting there with someone for an hour. Yeah. Um, do you have to have a particular temperament to do this type of work, do you think? Or I don't know. That's a good question. I think you've got to be... I think you've got to be assertive right. with your with your time. You know, there's this thing called emotional labor. So there's there's the work itself and the workshop itself or the session, whatever it is, working with a group. But you've got to t- with this kind of work, you've got to tie in on top of that the emotional labor. So if someone in a group discloses something that they've experienced, which is horrific, that, that can stay with you for days afterwards. And that's happened to me. That's happened to me where I've heard something and I've thought about it from a member of the group. I've thought about it for days afterwards. Yeah. And, you know, you don't, 
that's there's a lot of emotional labor that goes into yeah. that so this is a really specific job in lots of ways is this the kind of thing that you thought i'll be doing this you know when you were thinking about careers whatever it is that you were thinking about when you perhaps when you were at school well when i was at school um i wanted to be a psychologist when i was like about 13 i was like god psychology sounds really interesting and so i i wanted to be a psychologist and then i got introduced to art by and my art teacher mrs bowen and she introduced me to the history of art and i discovered that i was really good at that and uh which was great because i came from a family of like um historians and politicians and you know people well not politicians but people interested, interested in, in politics area. and stuff and i always felt a bit you know odd one out with being creative and emotional <laughs> uh, <laughs> so i discovered i was really good at art um and the history of art and i did I was very lucky to go to a school that offered up history of art as an a level so i did history of art as an a level with english literature and history and i knew that i wanted to go to university and do history of art because i just loved the subject i absolutely loved the subject i did my degree and then uh, when i came after my degree i knew that i wanted to work in an art gallery um, or a museum i didn't know what role it wanted to be but i knew it wanted to to be in education in in the learning department i wanted to work with people and groups and in the learning uh, area but I, that's as far as i got really um and then when i got when i was working here i i discovered that there was such a role as health and well-being manager and i thought yes that combines everything that yeah, I love. There's that psychology bit yeah. that's kind of in there, in a way. You've... Yes, absolutely. That combines everything I love in one role, so that's the role for me. So and yeah. when you picked the art route, was that, you said because you were good at it, you felt that you were good at the art history side of it. And, yeah. And I think you said your teacher was quite important in that. Yeah. What kind of, was it just conversations that you were having that led to that? Or was, was that the class that you felt comfortable in? I remember I remember opening, I think it was H.H. H. Arneson. Do you remember those? Do you remember, did you ever, those big encyclopedias oh, of yeah. history of art? Yeah. I remember opening that in the class and realizing that all these artists who created these artworks had life stories attached to them and then in the artworks you could find clues um about the artist or about the time itself oh you are in your perfect job oh my god yeah (laughs) i i I really really am and and also it's a bit like a detective as well you're like you know you're interpreting something you've got to find the meaning behind these things uh you know just the cracker thing too isn't it oh my god um (laughs) So I was, uh, yeah, so I was absolutely fascinated by the fact that you could, it was like you could, you know, you revealed things about the artist or about the time just by looking at this artwork. And I was, what part of one assignment, the first assignment was to write an essay on this, I can't remember what it was, I think it was on Art Nouveau or something. So I wrote an essay on Art Nouveau and the teacher, Mrs. Bowen, it's going to make me sound like such a swat, but the Mrs. Bowen, like the next day or the next couple of days or whatever, uh, stood up to class. I want you to read out this introduction. This is a perfect introduction 
to this thing. And she read out my essay. And obviously I was like, I was dying inside thinking, oh God, who's going to beat me up over this? But, um, but, but at the same time. But at the same time, I was like so proud. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, did something right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so it was that. And from then on, for some reason, she just was like, you get this, you know, you, you get this. And she would kind of single me out a lot of the times. And, you know, anytime we'd have a little conversation at, at her desk or, you know, leaving things and she would always make a point of being like, I know you get this, like you get this more than some others and, you yeah. know, you're on the right roads, that sort of thing. So I think it was that confidence as well. And I think at, at the time as a teenager, I was really struggling with a lot of things. And there's, there was this world that I could get lost in. And I was like, I'm good at this. I can get lost in this, you know, and she thinks I'm great at it. And it was a really positive, positive yeah. thing. In fact, a few months, yeah, a few months ago, I wrote her a letter and I said, and I've, I've always thought about doing it over the years and I just never did because, you know, you're busy and whatever. But I don't know what's, what took me to do it. But a few months ago, I wrote her a letter and I didn't tell anyone about it. I thought, I'm just going to give this out into the universe. I'm not going to tell anyone, like, aren't I oh, telling everyone now? But, <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, I was like, I'm not going to tell anyone. This is just going to be me putting something good into the universe. So I wrote yeah. her a letter and said, Dear Mrs. Bowen, you probably don't remember me, but um, my name's Louise. I used to be in your class, blah, 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 blah. I was going through a really, really hard time and you introduced me to the world of art and it, I escaped and blah, 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 blah. And now I'm the health and wellbeing manager at Manchester Art Gallery and I'm helping other people escape and or, you know, through art, improve their mental health, just like you did with me. And I just wanted to say thank you, blah, blah, blah. So I sent that to the school, thinking, I don't even know if she still works there. Sent it to the school, thought, ah, feel good. I feel good. I did a nice thing, feel good, carried on with my life. And then my sister said to me, did you send Mrs. Bowen a letter? And I was like, what? How, how do you know this? And she said, her friend Maeve, works at the school now and uh, may have told my sister your Louise sent a letter to Mrs Bowen saying thank you Baba. Mrs Bowen said I was on the verge of resigning from wow. teaching. I was so disillusioned. I thought I, what's the point in any of this? She was so kind of like tired and you know she must be close to retirement now anyway but Mrs Bowen said she received that letter and it totally changed her mind. And she That's carried amazing. on. Thank, I know it's amazing because A, you know, I wouldn't have known that had Maeve not, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I didn't tell anyone. There's something, there is something really about actually, there's a difference between thinking about doing it and thinking that person's really important to you and, yeah. and then actually, you know, writing that yeah. and, and sending it. Well, there's, I mean, there was a self, you know, it wasn't selfless. There's, there was a selfish kind of reason in doing it. And I know that expressing gratitude is a well-being skill. Yeah. So it's great to think about what you're grateful for. And it's great to like kind of talk about it, what you're grateful for. But if you can do an act yeah. of gratitude, you get the most out of that kind of good feeling. So I did it because... It was good for me too. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, and everyone's happy then, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, everyone wins. <laughs> it certainly sounds like it was important. 
I was re- I, honestly, well. I was really pleased to hear that. That's amazing. Yeah. So have you spoken to her? No, never. I haven't spoken to her since I left at 18, but I wrote to her, so I'm glad she's not resigned because she was a great teacher. That's, it's, that's incredible. Yeah. So thanks, Mrs. Bowen. So did Mrs. Bowen, did you work with her through A-levels as well? Or was that... Yes, A-levels, right. A-levels history of art. Um, and English, I think you said. English literature and history, but I ignored history. It's a bit of a classic combination of stuff there, isn't it? Yeah. It's humanities kind of focus. Yeah, yeah. But when I, I, you know, I applied to go to university in Manchester, I knew I wanted to come to Manchester and I sent off and they said, right, you need 18 points to get into MMU. So I thought, "Mm, 18 points, that's an A and a B or it's three C's or something like that. And I thought to myself, uh, I'm sure I can get an A in history of art and design. I'm sure I could if I really worked. And I'm sure I could get a B in English literature if I worked at it. <laughs> so I'm just going to... sliding yeah. down the scale. <laughs> so yeah. I was just like, I just ignored Amazing. history. In fact, I went to my history teacher and went, listen, I'm not going <laughs> to... This is what I'm doing. I'm getting an A and I'm getting a B and I'm going to Manchester and I'm not going to I'm not going to come this to history class. This is so class. familiar. Is it? <laughs> yeah. And he already said to me, he said, you know what you're doing? Go for it. And I was like, great. Good. Yeah, I think there, there, is, there is something that's really important about the balance there, making decisions about that stuff. I did something very similar. The one that I neglected, I got a B in, and the, one of the ones that I really worked hard on, I got a C in. Really? Yeah, and when I collected my results, um, my English teacher um, said, well, we'll never know how that happened, will we? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the art thing was like, you know, I felt like I was confident that that was yeah. going to work out and it was going to be fine. Yeah. But the, yeah, the, it was just the other way around. And it was English lit that I wasn't concentrating on. Right, right, right. And it was, uh, yeah. It's funny how things work out. Yeah. So you, you came to Manchester. So I came to Manchester, yeah. So that's quite a big jump. Well, I, I had a, a sister that lived in Manchester. Oh, right, okay. So I already had a little base here. You've got previous. Yeah. Had you visited before you came? Yes, I right. had. I'd visited on my own when I was about 15, 16, and oh. loved it, and stayed with her for a couple of weeks, and went out and about, and, you know, down So you could visualise what this experience was going to be like. Exactly, yeah. And I just, I just knew I wanted to get out of Belfast. I was like, you know, from the age of, as long as... 14 maybe I was like my passport out of this city is university yeah that's my passport so I'm I've gone to Manchester and, and did you come here with that thought I'm not going back yes. I'm gonna stay yeah. here or somewhere as yeah. a result of university definitely definitely I felt like when I was when I left I'd left for good I didn't know if I, I would always stay in Manchester but I thought I probably wouldn't go back. It didn't feel like, for me personally, it wasn't a great city to grow up in. Um, I wasn't very happy. So I knew, you know, as soon as I could get out, I got out. And did that motivate you through your degree, that thought of that? Or once you were out, did you just go, okay, I'm just on to the next bit now? I think I was just like, I'm just on to the next bit. I'll just see what, what, yeah, what happens next. I didn't think, I don't think I really had a plan. My plan was just get through university right. and pass. And then I went, once I got towards the end of university, I was like, right, God, what's my next plan here? And the obvious next plan was get a job so you can pay your rent. And so I got like a receptionist job, 
so I could pay my rent and it turned out to be like a really cool company to work for. So I stayed there for about a year and a half. And then I saw the jobs coming up here at the art gallery because the art gallery had just gone through a big extension, big refurbishment. So they were looking, taking on a lot of visitor team staff to, um, to um, what's the word, facilitate the, all the different uh, spaces. So I, that's, that's what I went for. It's like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna try and get in at that level. And my plan was always, this is probably a bit of a Belfast thing as well. My plan was always just start at the bottom and work up. And I think it never occurred to me to apply for a slightly higher role even though I, you know, I had a degree um, in history of art, but I, even back then, like tw in 2005, um, it, it just never occurred to me to apply for any yeah. a role other than the visitor team. I always felt more comfortable, go, you know, go in at that level and work your way up. I can do that. I felt more confident doing that. I'll, I'll work hard, I'll persevere, I'll hang on, I'll stick at it, you know, I'll I'll do it that way rather than any other way. And did you have connections with the gallery? No, I really didn't. I didn't have any connections whatsoever. Um, I finished university. I went into that office job, and you know, messed about, partied, and had a good time for a couple of years, and then just took the opportunity here. So I didn't have any connections. Or, or networks really. I, I'm not an artist, so and I never, I never, you know, saw myself as one at all. So I didn't have that same kind of. I wasn't part of the ecology in the city like artists yeah. are. Um, so no, I, I didn't know anyone. I just showed up. <laughs> so you applied and got a job like a front of house job here. Front of house job, yeah. Okay. So I got a front of house job here um, in the visitor team and I did that for about two and a half years. Then from there, I got a job in the bookshop and um, worked there for about a couple of years as well, but always with my eyes on the learning team. I knew I wanted to work in the learning team, I wanted to work with people, I wanted to work around education. So I figured I'll just stick, I will literally just stick around until something happens. And something did happen. Someone, a member of the team got pregnant. So she went on maternity leave, which meant there was a, a position became a secondment. Right. So I applied for that. I got that. And I was able to get about um, 12 months experience in this secondment, which then placed me in a really good position for when a permanent role came up, if more available, I'd already had that experience, uh, which did happen. So the, the person that went on maternity leave decided to come back part-time. So they still needed another part-time person. And I was able to, to, to do that um, role. And that was the learning officer. Right. So that was supporting all the different learning managers with their programs. So I, was, I worked with the families, family learning manager, I worked with the adult learning manager, I worked with the community development manager, and eventually I worked with the health and well-being manager as well. So I was like a support admin. So little bits of everything. Yes. It's quite a good way of figuring Brilliant. out. Brilliant. 
because sometimes I think it's quite hard if you don't have any experience of learning to re- understand what the differences are between those different. Absolutely. You know, learning with schools is quite different to learning with families. And... Right. Absolutely right. And that was kind of my goal was to I want to want to get experience in everything so I understand how it all works. Um, but yeah, so supporting them, supporting the learning team for about five years um three or yeah four or five years in that role made made sure that i had a really broad general knowledge of each of their areas of work um but i worked mainly with the family learning manager because the family program was so big it took up a lot of my time which was great and you know i loved working with children in particular uh, and i had a great manager here called Alex Thorpe and she said to me, you know, what are you, what are you really interested in? And I said, I really love the work that Lisa is doing, the health and wellbeing manager. I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in mental health and art and creativity. And Alex said, okay, and you know, this, I really respect her for this. She said, okay, one day a week, go with Lisa. So she give, she let go of one day of my time Uh, It is for a manager to go, you know, you can go with and help someone else, basically. So I was like, oh, really? Yeah, one day a week, go and support Lisa, learn, you know, everything you want to learn from her. And that's what I did. So I worked with the then health and wellbeing manager one day a week, probably for about a year and a half, two years, and learned loads on the job. I really do believe a lot of like learn by doing and you know experience is the best teacher and all those kind of cliches but and that's that's what happened I learned loads from those other so you kind colleagues. Of had a mini apprenticeship in yeah this yeah group. absolutely yeah and so then what happened is that Lisa the health and well-being manager she moved on and um, she when she handed in her notice she uh, she told me she, I was I'm and I'm very grateful that she did this. But she said, you know, I'm handing him a notice, blah blah blah. She said, and I think you should give Louise Thompson the job. Wow. Yeah, and that, you know that has a lot of weight, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, I, re- I was yeah, I was really grateful. Obviously, the job was advertised yeah. and it all it all went by the book. But I really appreciated that. But she sometimes said that. when you're at a lower level, it's not always visible to the people who are interviewing about what contributions you might have made. Yeah, that's true. You know, true. if you're not reporting at a managerial level to a senior management team, yeah, that's the true. individual contribution. And I think that those kinds of conversations, especially when you move into more senior positions about making other people in an organisation aware of who has supported a project that you've worked on is yeah. a really solid thing to do. You yeah. Rec- Recognising that. I think so, definitely. And I think, you know, I hope I would always do that as well. Because that's, you kind of, you pay it forward, don't you? Yeah. Have you had any other training that supported the kind of work that you're doing now? So have there been individual bits of training? And I guess the second bit to that question is, is maybe around mentoring. Is there anybody that, whether it's official or unofficial, that's kind of represented support structure for you? I think, well, it, particularly doing the job, the type of work that I do, I think it's important to have particular types of training. So a lot of the work that we do here at Manchester Art Gallery is around mindfulness. So I train to be a mindfulness teacher and the gallery, uh, you know, f- thankfully 
paid for that training because it was it was quite important for my role. Um, so I, I am a trained mindfulness teacher. I think that's important, um, especially if you're working with vulnerable adults or young people. Um, and then general training, uh, anytime there's an opportunity to go on a seminar or, you know, a day's training about mental health or uh, leadership training or anything like that, I would always, you know, opt into that because yeah. I think I just love learning. And mentoring, you know, that's a really good, good question. I come from a family of six there's six of us, my five siblings, and I'm the youngest. Oh, right. So I feel yeah. like I've got five mentors. <laughs> uh, some of them are better than others. <laughs> <laughs> but no, really, my eldest sister, Jennifer, is a great mentor to me. She's a head teacher in a primary school. She's a great leader. She uh, she works here in Manchester in Moss Side. It's a, it can be a challenging area. It's also a yeah. wonderful area. A uh, beautiful community, beautiful people, and she has you know, developed the school over the years to be outstanding, and has won awards and everything. So I consider her to be a sort of informal mentor. It's a bit of a running joke. My my partner David always says that I don't really need a mentor because I've you know I've got five of them at my disposal. <laughs> <laughs> but I would I would love to have a, an official mentor someone um it is a developing area within museums and galleries isn't yeah, it this yeah. and it, I, I'm, I'm guessing that it's a it's a smaller network in some respects than some of the other more established job trees that yeah. exist there yeah so maybe looking so. outside of museums and galleries is might be somebody there mm. that's it's an, it's an interesting thing i'm kind of fascinated about how this this is developing the, yeah. this area. So what does the future look like? What's next for you? Here at Manchester, and I guess in my own practice as well, is I'm quite interested at the minute in trauma-informed practice and what that might look like in museums and galleries. So we talk about trauma-informed approaches or practice or methods in any sector really, you can be a trauma-informed police officer, trauma-informed social worker, trauma-informed prison officer, um, dentist, What it could be anything. But I'm really interested in what trauma-informed practice looks like in an art gallery and in, and in a museum. Not just in how we work with people in our learning programs, although that's probably the most obvious and most important place to start, but also what does a trauma-informed exhibition design strategy look like? Or what does a trauma-informed social media strategy look like? Um, and I think I, I want to develop my understanding around trauma-informed practice to begin with and then see how I can apply that with our work here at Manchester Art Gallery. Um, I think that will influence my own practice as well. I'm trained as a trauma-informed mindfulness teacher, so I do have some understanding and knowledge of it, but I'd really like to, uh, to understand more how it would, what it would look like here. So what does a trauma-informed gallery look like? What does it do? Um, we, at here at the Art Gallery, we've actually had some trauma awareness training during the pandemic, and 70% uh, of the gallery staff took part in it, which I was really pleased about. 
And I've been sort of talking about trauma-informed practice for the last couple of years, any chance I can get with the staff team. And I was really delighted, actually, about four months ago, a curator came up to me and said, Louise, I've got, we're going to put on this display. Um, and we've got a few artworks that are show quite challenging content. One of them is about 9-11. The other one's about uh, this murder that took place. And, and they said, do you want to have a conversation about this? Because, you know, thinking about your trauma-informed approach, like, is there anything you want us to consider? And I said to her, you know, just the fact that you've come here and had opened up this conversation is already a significant step. That is trauma-informed practice to a certain degree. So I'm really delighted that that's happened. But what we did is we went and we looked at the artworks and we decided that we would display them in a part of the room and we would place a red dot on the curatorial label so that when people came into the space and they read the interpretation panel, at the bottom of the panel, it would say content guidance. We don't use trigger warning because trigger warning can be quite triggering. So we say content guidance. There's a few artworks in the space that deal with challenging issues, conflict, war, etc. We've placed a red dot on the label of these artworks so you can decide how you want to engage with them. And that relates to this idea around informed consent, which is a really important part of trauma-informed practice. It's about, you know, telling people exactly what to expect, no surprises, telling them what the situation is, and then they can choose whether they want to consent to that experience or not. Because we're an art gallery, we're gonna show artworks and we're gonna have objects that have challenging content so it's not about never showing that it's about doing it in a thoughtful and a sensitive and informed way so that was just like one little example where i think art galleries and museums can be a bit more intentional how they display things i'd like to develop that a bit more and maybe um, produce a publication or something that might might be able to share with other venues but i'm i'm sort of just on the first few steps of that journey myself so um yeah i'm quite excited about about that thing i felt i feel about trauma-informed practice the way i felt about mindfulness when i first learned about it you know back in 2014 and i'm like what is this thing called mindfulness you know and now i'm like living it every day (laughs) (laughs) so i'm like oh it's a new thing i'm gonna learn like i said i I love learning so i always want to learn and develop my professional practice. So I'm hoping the future holds uh, more trauma-informed practice that I can share with other people as well. That's brilliant. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Um, thank been you. really generous this afternoon. Well, my pleasure. Um, yeah, hopefully check in with you. It'd be great to see what comes of those conversations. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. 